to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Again, welcome to Roswell Presbyterian Church. It's a joy to be in worship with you, especially on this first Sunday of Advent. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I appreciate all the prayers. I mentioned that I was heading out to Washington State, so I'm happy to say I'm still married. We didn't lose our kids. Everything went great, so thank you for your prayers. It is uh, the first Sunday of Advent. It's a joy to be in this process of waiting. Advent is is a time of waiting. We really remember three kinds of waiting. The first is we remember the waiting for Jesus to come initially 2,000 years ago, come to Mary. Second, we, we wait for God to come to us by God's spirit into our hearts every day. And third, we wait to the ultimate, this eschatological waiting, the end of all things, when God promises to make all things right. In this Advent season, we're going to study the Magnificat. The Magnificat is Mary's song. It comes from Luke 1. It's her song that she sings in response to hearing this news that she is with child. And she bears the hope, not just of Israel, but the hope of the world. And she sings this great song. We're going to look at it. But today, we're going to look at the two verses that kind of introduce the song. Mary hears this great news that she is with child. And she goes to the only person she knows who can identify with her kind of circumstances, Elizabeth. Because Elizabeth has just found out six months prior that she is pregnant. Even though she and her husband, Zachariah, are way beyond childbearing years, she has been gifted a child. And so she's pregnant, and so Mary goes to be with her. So let us open our hearts, our minds, and our ears for the word of the Lord from Luke 1, verses 39 and 40. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zachariah, and greeted Elizabeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask that in the next few moments that you might be our teacher, that you by your spirit might speak a word to our hearts that only you can speak. Now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Saturday, December 8th, 1990. My friend threw a birthday party, and we had lunch, we had cake, and then we all went to see the holiday hit film, Home Alone. And in the movie, we watched the McAllister family accidentally leave their youngest child, Kevin, home as the family goes on holiday to Paris. Only during mid-flight do they realize that they've left Kevin behind in their Chicago suburban home. Young Kevin is left home alone. What could go wrong? (laughs) Once the family arrives in Paris, they discover that there are no flights back to Chicago for two days. Also, the phone lines are shut down because of the snowstorm. And the premise and the plot are set. 
and it earns its title. Kevin is home alone. Over the years, fans have been fascinated by this movie. When it was first released, in fact, it did over half a billion dollars in box office. It was incredible. And interestingly enough, for live action comedies, it was only surpassed by The Hangover 2. (laughs) Which actually I have a lot to say about, but I'm going to save that for another day. Um, It brought in half a billion dollars. Guess how much the budget was that they spent to make it? $18 million. How's that for return? There were no special effects other than taking the glass out of Joe Pesci's feet. There were no superheroes, no superpowers, no murders, no car chases, no ghosts coming out of the basement. Just old-fashioned, live-action storytelling. $18 million turned into half a billion. Why do people, both young and old, find this movie so compelling? Yes, it's funny, but there are a lot of funny comedies out there. Why was this one so interesting, so compelling to so many people around the world? I believe it was so popular because it speaks to a universal human experience. This experience of being felt like you're left home alone. What do you do? When the people who are supposed to care about you forget about you. What are you supposed to do when the people you thought loved you let you down? What makes you feel safe when everyone's deserted you? What happens when you feel left home alone? Our text finds Mary home alone. She's feeling very alone. We must remember that in the ancient world, a young woman was given over to engage or betrothed at the age of 12. This was common culturally at the time. And there was kind of this ancient engagement process that you would go through. A couple would become betrothed to each other when the bride's father arranged the marriage. Now the bride would continue to live with her family for about a year. Until after that year was done, then there would be a big party, a week-long celebration of a wedding. And at the end, the bride and the groom would be married together, and they would live together. But even though over that year, even though they were engaged or betrothed, it was completely unacceptable to get pregnant during that time. That's why they left, lived apart. Unacceptable. And yet... God has decided to bring the Savior of the world into the world in this way. Through an unwed pregnant woman. I think all of us who presume to know the limits of how God could work, should, this story should give us pause. Because I'm sure there were plenty of naysayers and haters in her community that that thought she was sinful, immoral, wicked. And yet, God still works. And yet, she bears Jesus the Christ child, the Savior of the world. God works. But I'm here to tell you, even when God is working, you can still feel alone. In her time of loneliness, the only person she knows who can identify with her predicament is her cousin Elizabeth, 
And so the text tells us that Mary goes to see Elizabeth. She goes with haste. She's in a hurry. The phrase to go with haste can also be translated with thoughtfulness or with eagerness. In other words, she doesn't dilly-dally. She doesn't wander her way there. She goes with a sense of purpose. She's in a hurry. She needs to be with someone. She needs to be with Elizabeth. So where does she go? She goes, she goes to a Judean town in the hill country. Now we can't be for sure, but tradition tells us that Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah, live in the village of Ein Kerem. <coughs> oh, wow, sorry. <laughs> Let's point out that doesn't happen again. Ein Kerem was a small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Now, it's about 100 miles away from the village of Nazareth. It's a long way away, and it's about 1,300 feet higher than Nazareth. So she's got to go 100 miles on a steep incline to see Elizabeth. This is a tough journey, and yet the text tells us Mary goes with haste. Even though it's a difficult, a dangerous journey, she is done being alone. I need to be with somebody. I no longer want to be home alone. Mary embodies a universal human experience. She's young, vulnerable, isolated. She's feeling unsafe. She's alone. And I think we've all probably been in those times and places in our lives where we feel alone. That night of Saturday, December 8th, 1990, it's always stuck with me. After I went to that birthday party with my friend, we went to see the movie, I came home. And my parents surprised me and said, we've made plans and we're gonna go to a Christmas party tonight. I was 12 years old at the time and I didn't see a babysitter coming. And I began to wonder. They said, we won't be far away, but we're leaving you home alone and in charge. And then they left. It was actually much worse than being home alone because they left me in charge of my little brother and sister too. And I remember fresh off seeing Kevin McAllister when he recognizes that he's home alone. He has this exhilaration, this excitement. He goes into his parents' bedroom, begins to eat popcorn, it flies everywhere. He's jumping on the bed. He watches gangsters movies. He puts aftershave on his face. He eats whatever he wants. He's exhilarated. He's excited until night falls. And then being alone doesn't seem so exciting. It becomes real to Kevin. And I remember when my parents left me home alone. It's like, oh, I can eat whatever I want, watch whatever I want on television. And then night fell. And then it got quiet. And I was alone in the house. And fear set in. I believe this is a universal human fear. Are we truly alone? Are we just floating on a big rock through the cosmos? Many people don't want to even entertain this question. So they don't ask it. They busy themselves with distraction, with entertainment, purchasing consumer products, Fantasy sports, gambling, I could go on and on. The list of distractions is almost endless. 
They want to avoid the fact of asking, are we alone? The Christian philosopher and apologist Francis, Francis Schaeffer once said, man has both feet planted firmly in midair. We are often ignorant beings. We are forgetful. We get scared easily. We're riddled with doubt and often despair. But to make matters worse, we don't even recognize our predicament. We don't even raise the important questions. We don't even think about them. I'm reminded of Mark Twain's line who once said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. (laughs) Later in the Gospel of Luke, the adult Jesus, he'll be teaching the crowds. And there's this great scene where the children begin to gather around him. And the disciples come over and they begin to shush the, the children away. They say, oh, you're too young, you wouldn't understand. They say, oh, this, is, this isn't for you. Shh, let the, let the mature adults in close. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, let the children come unto me. And then he says something very interesting. He says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that has always kind of bewildered me. But I kind of wonder if it's this, this thing about being a kid that you recognize your helplessness, your aloneness in the cosmos, your neediness, your need of help. And Jesus is saying, unless you become and recognize that, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you ask the question, am I left home alone? You can't hear the good news that Jesus has to offer. Have you ever wondered if we are alone? The first book my wife ever gave me was The Movie Goer by the uh, Roman Catholic Southern writer, Walker Percy. I mentioned it several times a year because it made a profound impact on me. It was his first book, it won him the National Book Award, and it tells the story set in New Orleans of this stockbroker named Binks Bowling. And Binks, Percy says, this just kind of goes along with his life. He says most of the time he spends flirting with secretaries and going to movies. Classic 20-year-old. But then his 30th birthday approaches. And Percy says, Binks begins to wake up to his life and wake up to the world. He begins to notice that everyone seems to be sleepwalking through life, he says. Well, he's got this profound line in the book. He says, if you wake up to your life, you'll wake up to what he calls the search. And he says, the search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life. The search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life. We are sunk in everydayness. And so we don't ask the most important questions. Are we alone? I was thinking about this question in terms of Advent. And this last week, I was like, you know what? I think there's, there's a scene in another Walker Percy book where Christmas Eve and Christmas plays a really important role in, in relation to this question. And then I remembered, and I went 
I, lo I looked at Percy's third book. It's called Love in the Ruins, The Adventures of a Bad Catholic at a Time Near the End of the World. <laughs> it tells the story of a man named Dr. Tom Moore. William F. Buckley Jr. actually said about this book, it should be required reading for every American president because all of America's problems and predicaments are included in it. Pretty profound. And what we see in the book is Dr. Moore is alienated from himself and from the world. And, he's, and if you read it, the world is coming apart at the seams and no one seems to notice and no one seems to care. And Dr. Moore, it's a long book, it's like 400 pages, but at the very end, the last scene, Dr. Moore has gone through a trauma on Christmas Eve. And this trauma wakes him up to his life. And Percy seems to be saying that Christmas, Advent, Christmas Eve, this season of the year is meant to wake us up to the important things of life. And so Dr. Moore in this final scene, he's on the back porch, and you guys will love this. He's, he's grilling the Christmas turkey. And Dr. Moore reflects to himself. He says, barbecuing in my sackcloth, the turkey is smoking well. The children have gone to bed, but they'll be up at dawn to open their presents. The night is clear and cold. There is no moon. The light of the transmitter lies hard by Jupiter, ruby and diamond in the plush velvet sky. Ellen, that's his wife, Ellen is busy in the kitchen fixing stuffing and sweet potatoes. And somewhere in, a sw in the swamp, a screech owl cries. I'm dancing around to keep warm, hands in my pockets. It is Christmas day and the Lord is here, a holy night. And surely that is all one needs. Advent, and the Christmas season are reminders that we are not alone, that God has come to us in Jesus Christ, and that just as Mary goes to Elizabeth taking the Christ child with her, so we are called to take the Christ child by his spirit out into the world to remind folks that we are not alone. See, Mary answers the three great questions of Advent. We waited for the Christ child to come 2,000 years ago. And by his coming, God offers God's presence to us by his Holy Spirit every day into our hearts. And this is a down payment. This is a commercial of things to come when God promises to make all things right in consummation at the end of time. And so what does this mean we should be doing in the meantime? I'll return back to Little Kevin, Kevin McAllister. He knows his parents are eventually gonna come home. They love him too much to stay away. But he also knows that in the meantime, there are forces who threat, threaten his world and his family's world. And he's been called up to defend the goodness of his world. And when the villains begin to circle, when dangers approach, when the ugliness of the world looms, what does Kevin do? He fights back. And Mary calls those of us who have heard and believe and trusted in the good news that we are not alone, that God comes to us in Jesus Christ. We are called 
to fight for goodness and love and truth and beauty as well. The message of Advent is that we are not alone, that God has come to us in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Kevin McAllister. We are not alone. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the good news that we are not alone, that you have come to us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you, by your spirit, might make that reality present to us today, even now. Lord, that we celebrate this great coming, that we are not alone. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that we might take his light, his life, into the world that desperately needs it this year. You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.